Welcome to All Things Erie from Erie PA. This is Kathy. I'm your host, and this is episode 17. This will be part two of The Torch Killer, Edna Mambulo. We're going to wrap up what had happened from the first part, and we'll start that in just a minute. I just want to, again, thank everybody who has downloaded the podcast since our last episode. And like I said, we had picked up new listeners from New York and Maryland and Illinois since then. Um, We, as of this point, have been accepted to iTunes. So if you are listening, we are on not only podbean.com, but Spotify, Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes. So if you are listening to this for the first time, please, you are more than able to go back, look at the previous episodes and download those and go and listen to the, and listen to those episodes. There are 15 previous episodes plus too many episodes on to what has been happening lately here in Erie. We got another snowfall and again, not as much as what we normally do. And I'm okay with that. However, those of us who suffer from migraines and anyone who does can attest to any change in the barometric pressure and stuff like that. It is a horrible, horrible, horrible day to be around. Thankfully it was on the weekend. Um, the only thing, the only way I can describe it is being shot in the forehead while having a pike shoved up underneath my spine and being smacked in on top of the head with a shovel. That's how much fun it is. So Let's just say this weekend has been more of a recuperating weekend from the weather, even though it really hasn't been that bad, but, uh, going from high forties to below freezing within, you know, a little over 24 hours, not much fun for us migraine sufferers. So my, my son came back from his Vermont vacation and he just had an absolute blast. So we talked to him for a little bit last night. He was uh, talking about what all uh, goes on up in Vermont and the ski place that he was at. He just he had an absolute great time with him and his buddies up there. They had a, a guy's vacation. So needless to say, those from Vermont, thanks. You guys were very, very welcoming to uh, the boys up there. And I say boys because as I see him, he's always going to be a, you know, one of my boys. So, but what we're going to do is recap real fast for Edna Mambulo and go into the rest of the story that makes up her case. What had happened prior to that was Edna was a young, a young mother who had to give up her children and she married very young at the age of 16 
even though she married that the father of her children, she still gave up her set of twins. That husband died. <clears throat> she moved around with her family. During one of these moves, she met, she met Ralph, who in turn, this was an affair. Ralph's wife died. Edna and Ralph got together. Ralph has a child from that marriage. And they got together and made their way here to Erie and had been living together as common-law wife and husband. And Edna had been taking care of their of his daughter Hilda who at that time was 11. Now what Edna was doing at the home was designing and making dresses out of the home babysitting the neighborhood children for those who had to work. On the morning of March 21st things seemed to have been normal but at 7 a.m. there was a fire in their apartment building. Edna was accused of throwing a pan of gasoline that was set ablaze onto Hilda, who was killed due to her injuries. Now, up until this point, Edna believed her and Ralph were fine. The investigation had been closed, but people were suspicious because Edna and Ralph were not acting the way parents should have act should have acted over the death of a child a when Hilda was being taken away in the ambulance instead of them just rushing away with her <clears throat> Edna was making comments not just save my baby but where are my furs at if she had just stuck with the comments of oh my gosh save my baby save my baby and been crying and distraught over that I don't think many people would have questioned her much <clears throat> but when you start going into the fact of where being materialistic then people start to question things then on top of that a neighbor saw ralph go and get certain paperwork she wasn't quite sure what the paperwork was but they soon later found out that instead of being with hilda when she died they were at erie insurance company trying to cash in her life insurance that she that Hilda had received from her mother when her mother had died. Now the insurance policy was worth $6,000 back in 1930. In today's money, that would have been worth over $92,000. So, that's a lot of money. And Edna and Ralph were barely make, barely making ends meet. Combined money they were bringing in less than $25 a week and Edna Edna was making dresses, babysitting, and Ralph was working at the local, at a local company here in Erie. So now that everybody is caught up, we're going to begin into the, the capture and the trial of, of Edna Mambulo. So this will take us to March 31st. The coroner started looking into the case. He wasn't satisfied with Edna's explanation of what had happened because when he started looking at the various reports of what Edna had to say, they, did, they didn't match up. She had different variations 
that she told her neighbors. She had a different variation that she told the police and then a different variation that she actually told the firefighters. So coroner had the case reopen and then the investigators, and I had said this in the past episode that they had returned to the, the side of the fire and they took detailed notes. They mapped out the apartment and they took photographs. And what they did was they rented out the apartment so that no repairs would be made to the apartment and to keep the uh, crime scene in pristine, uh, to preserve it. And then the day after the case was reopened, so this would take us into April, the Erie County authorities started to begin to look for Ralph and Edna. A detective, Leroy, a search and assistant detective, Harry Russell, were employed to, to investigate. And again, this, was, this is finishing up from last episode. They had sent them all over into New York to Hilda's gravesite to their relatives. They couldn't find them. They went to the local alderman, Eugene Albershot, to have a charge of murder against Ralph and Edna, even though it was the evidence itself was circumstantial. So they were taking a huge chance on, chance on this, but it worked out for them in the end. By the time that the authorities had caught up with Ralph and Edna, they, meaning Ralph and Enda, officially got married because the time that the warrant was issued, it was issued to Ralph Mambulo and his common-law wife, Edna Deschunk. Edna and Ralph married in PA, and they married in the city of Montrose. And Edna was smart about this because there's, it was a protection for her PA law prevented an individual being forced to prevent, uh, being forced to present damaging testimony against a spouse. So Ralph didn't have to say anything against her if he knew something and he was a part of it or vice versa, depending on who was being brought up on charges. So in effect, Edna had silenced the one other person who knew the intention of the, of the fire. Um, So when Edna and Ralph returned, they checked into a motel instead of staying with relatives, which, you know, for the relatives themselves, that was kind of a sticky situation. Do you believe what's going on or do you give them the benefit of the doubt? Because you watched how these people reacted after the aftermath and Maybe there was doubt there. So the detectives, they ended up questioning the couple, but they ended, they had to let them go because they, they didn't have the warrant at that point in time. And they had no legal authority to hold them. But the warrant arrived two days later on April 5th. And then the officers promptly went and arrested both Edna and Ralph in the, to- in the town of Edmonston. So at this point, Edna was only a bride of three days. She was obviously hysterical when the charges were read. She collapsed several times. And 
what I'm a, I'm a huge life PD fan. Um, they call it gelitis. So people will become hysterical. They'll fake medical conditions so they can go to the hospital and not to jail, things like that. So that's my personal opinion. That's what happened. And then when uh, Ralph was confronted, he denied his identity, which in today's day and age is, you know, you're committing a crime. And then it was, I don't know what you're talking about. He said, it's a quote from Ralph. I don't. And what are you trying to do? Hang a murder charge on me. So again, he's denying everything that happened. You know who you are. You know, your daughter died. So why are you trying to deny any of this happened? Once Edna calmed down, she herself tried to elude the the authorities by asking, you know, hysterically, what's happening? What's happening? What's happening? Again, jailitis. And then the two were taken to Shenango County Jail in Nor- Norwich, New York. In this essence, and this is where it gets interesting, because remember, they got married in PA, they're wanted in PA, they're over on the East Coast. And this is when New York gets involved. The Shenango County District District Assistant Attorney Frank Barnes confronted Edna, and she totally denied all charges to Barnes, but did admit that she bought the gas the day before the fire so she could clean a dress. And then Barnes took Edna's statement over the phone, translated it to Erie County Assistant District Attorney Otto Herbst. And then Herbst began to put his case together against both Ralph and Edna, first by drawing up extradition papers, giving, and then he started giving out the assignments to his various associates and then made preparations to make a trip to Norwich. Herbst arrived in Norwich on April 10th, and then this is when Edna really, her mood changed. There were times when she would sit in her cell motionless, you know, they say stoic-faced and somber, and then out of nowhere, she would break down into fits of tears and stormed around inside her cell. Edna then would yell for a dose of opiates that she had been given ever since her arrest that Saturday. So it's kind of like being given Ativan, but they didn't have Ativan back then. So they just gave her some morphine. So the jail physician had been giving Edna a sedative each night to help her sleep. The dose was so high that in just one minute, she would be fast asleep. The jail physician had at one point suggested that Edna was a quote-unquote drug addict and that she was craving opiates. But later on, Dr. George Manley would, you know, have those remarks retracted, but had said that, quote-unquote, something was preying on Mrs. Mambulo's mind. Again, she is now being confronted with the facts of, hey, we know that there's something that happened. You tried taking off. We caught you. Now you're having to face these facts. Then the fact is, is that Hilda died because of something that you did. So then that brings us to April 9th. <clears throat> they were brought into separate rooms. The county courthouse sheriff, Orms, Ormsby, 
Shenango County District ADA Frank Barnes. And and I'm just going to say ADA from now on because if I keep doing assistant district attorney, it's going to get tongue-tied really fast. But I will keep doing the diff- the different uh, counties that they're from because they do flip-flop a lot in here. Back to this. And then Erie County District ADA Otto Herbs question Edna and some people had reported that it was, it was quite a grilling. So, you know, if it, if it had been a man, nobody would have questioned it, but because she was a woman, they, they thought it was a little too severe, but again, it was about a child, a child's death. So sorry, not sorry. Uh, you know, it, in today's day and age, it doesn't matter if it's a man or a woman back then they still had an etiquette of how they would interview people, men, eh, you know, beat them around a little bit. And if they got a little bruised, they got a little bruised. But for women, it was, there was a fine line that you didn't cross because they were still considered gentlemen. When first asked what happened on the day of the fire, Edna broke, broke down into tears. This is the version that she told. I'm just going to read from the transcript. I would have liked to have had somebody read with me, but didn't happen that way. All right. This is, this is Edna. After Ralph went to work, I bought the jug of gasoline, brought the jug of gasoline from my bedroom into the kitchen and poured about half of it into a pan. While I was rubbing it, there was a sudden flash and flames toward the kitchen window. She sobbed. And this is, this is someone else. Why didn't you throw the pan of burning gasoline out the kitchen window in your apartment instead of running through Hilda's room, Hilda's bedroom with it, Herbst asked. A string of wash blocked my path, she explained, so I turned into the bedroom toward the window. Why, Herbst reported, retorted. I couldn't, I couldn't, she cried. The interrogation team took notes. Why is Ralph being questioned? He wasn't even there. Tell me, Mrs. Mumbulo, why didn't you save Hilda? Herbst asked. Don't ask me that. Don't ask me that, she screamed. I loved her as my own, and if I had another chance, I'd give my life for her. But why didn't you help her? Herbst pressed. I don't know. I ran out of the room, and it seemed to me Hilda ran in the other direction, she replied. Why are you doing this? She asked. Herbst and the others simply looked at her. By then, the four were joined by Dr. Manley. Looking to the physician, Edna asked, Can I please have more medicine? Herbst responded, You'll get all you want when you tell what we, what we want to know. Edna's hand shook. She turned her head down. She turned her head downward. I did everything for her, she said denied myself that I'm that she might have good clothes provided money for her entertainment and now you say I killed her now that's the end of that transcript but during this interrogation they were watching her the entire time just like any good investigator would do and and it goes on to say that both men were looking at Edna's hands now remember she poured gas into a pan And that pan was lit on fire. And she's saying she carried this from one window to another. And what they were looking for was there were no signs of burns. 
nothing of a sudden flash that may have seen that may have even come close to her hands her hands which had not only been near the burning pan but in the gas within the pan not one bit of any scarring or burn there is nothing on her she didn't even have any burning no singed hair or anything like that she didn't lose any eyebrows nothing they spent hours asking the same questions over and over just like any regular interrogation they were going into greater detail about edna's relationship with ralph which meant how did you meet him how long did you know him how did his wife die <clears throat> what happened when when the flash of fire and then while all of this was going on the the paperwork had to be processed for the extradition back to erie the, that paperwork wasn't completed until April 14th because it had to go from where they were down to Harrisburg, back up to Albany, then back to the governor's office because they had to go to the governor's office in Albany, back down to the governor's office in PA because both governors had to sign off on the extradition papers for both Edna and Ralph. And through all of this, while this is all going on, this case captured the attention of the reporters of New York. And then rumors started to circulate about the intent and the details of how the fire started because nobody knew. They just heard bits and pieces of this story going on. And like I said, this wasn't complete until April 14th. So during this time frame, on April 10th, the same day that the paperwork was being signed by PA's governor for the extradition, which was John Fisher, Edna and Ralph's attorney filed for a habeas corpus hearing, which that in itself is supposed to be a long hearing, and it could, which could take up to about eh, three weeks or so. Herps, he just automatically opposed this hearing. He wanted them back in Erie and in the courthouse as soon as possible. On April 11th, that the hearing proceeded with the New York Supreme Court Justice Abraham Kellogg. So this is why I'm saying it's so interesting. This, the murder itself happened in Erie. In today's day and age, it would have been, look, you have no jurisdiction over these people. These people killed this little girl here in Erie, in Pennsylvania. You have no jurisdiction. New York, they're in New York, and the attorney is saying, well, let us see what happened. We're going to draw this out as long as possible. And the court, they, they have to rule on this. So Judge Kellogg, after listening for three days between the filings and the objection, rejected the defense's writ. He said, you know what? They're right. We don't have any, any, any say over this. So the defense then quickly prepared the appeal to the writ's denial. With that submission of the appeal to the appellate division of New York, which automatically blocked the extradition process, even though both governors have already signed off on it, saying they're good to go. Take them back to Erie. Try them back in Erie. The court system said, no, 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 no. Wait a minute here. Wait a minute here. Slow down. Put a pause on this. Let's look at this for just a minute. An appellate hearing was then set for May 13th in Albany. So Ralph and Edna would be staying in Shenango County for about a month. Herbst was frustrated for all the delays and the cost 
that it was going to cost Erie. For Ralph and Edna, it wasn't going well either because their first their first appeal was um, their first hearing was denied. Their appeal it was a long it was going to take a while to get the the appeal heard. It didn't look like it was going to go well for them anyways. And then on top of that, remember back in the first uh, episode, they, they had a car they bought on credit. Well, the car itself was repossessed because the company argued that Ralph and Edna had violated the terms of their contract by taking the car out of state. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever you purchase something like that, that should be a big thing you keep in the back of your mind. Now, did they think that that company was ever going to find out that they drove out of state? I don't know. But they did because of all the information that was in the press. Ralph and Edna are stuck in Shenango uh, uh, County. By April 25th, Ralph and Edna had had enough. They were like, we give up. They withdrew their appeal to the New York State Supreme Court and agreed to the extradition to PA. On April 28th, Detective Harry Russell and Erie Policewoman Elizabeth Jeffs escorted both Ralph and Edna to, from Norwich to Erie. And they came by train. And they left that morning. They had a layover in Binghamton, New York, until a little after about 3 p.m. that day. During that time frame, because they were sitting in different cars, Detective Russell tried to question Ralph, but Ralph never said a word. Edna was quiet, never said a word, just watched the countryside go by. The train pulled into the station here at Erie about 1030 at night. They were surrounded by photographers. They were asked if they were innocent. Both of them had replied yes. There were over 100 people, citizens from Erie, that had crammed into the nickel plate depot to see this this couple. While they were here waiting, over the week, <clears throat> this week, the Erie Daily Times ran several articles about the couple, about the upcoming tri- trials, or about the upcoming trial, about whether if or not the prosecutor would even be able to get a conviction. And this is... This is when people couch their opinions of the evil stepmother. Before, before this, Edna was referred to as the, as the mother. So people are just finding out that she's the stepmother of Hilda. People, the prosecutor and them are getting their witnesses together. They even went so far as to find an, uh, a man named Emmanuel Urch, who was a former border of the Mambulos. He was found out in Illinois and was asked about the relationship between Edna and Hilda. I mean, he was held until they could question him. Ralph obviously was urged to talk. And his only response was that Edna loved the child as, as if it were her own, not if she was her own, if it was her own. Then on April 30th, 1930, both Ralph and Edna were arraigned, and the following day, their attorneys, Trusdell and Thomas, visited the East Side apartments. And the grand jury hearing was held on May 1st. Trusdell had asked that Edna and Ralph be tried together, prosecution, which they saw right through that, and who had later told the press that he believed the marriage exception 
from testifying was null because the crime was committed before the marriage had been recorded, which kind of, you know, sneaky there, interesting, but sneaky, but they were considered common law husband and wife, which my understanding is that even though they're not married by either, they don't have their certificate, but I thought common law meant that everything else applied. There were nine witnesses that were brought to the grand jury hearing and they were questioned and cross-examined. Then in a surprise move, the prosecution did not seek the charge of first degree murder, but went with the murder in the second degree. The charge that was leveled at Edna was that she had deliberately sought to inflict bodily harm, which surprised the defense because all the reports that were circulating around at the time suggested that the prosecution was going to go for first degree, made the, def uh, the defense have to shift their strategies on how that they were going to go around this. And then at that time, Thomas and Tresdale handed over the case to a local attorney, William Carney. And Carney himself called upon both local and national experts to bolster his arguments for Edna. And A.H. Hamilton was brought in from Osening, New York. And Hamilton had been involved in over 268 murder trials and could supposedly could prove that the friction of Edna's washing could actually ignite the dress. The critics scoffed at it, then asked how the fire got in Hilda's bed. Okay, you can prove it. If you can prove that that's how the fire started, that's fine. But prove to us how the child got burned in the first place. Started in the kitchen, but how did it end up in Hilda's room? This case was a, a sensationalized from the beginning, which in turn meant it was a sensationalized trial. And Erie itself followed the story daily. There were uh, so many requests for about entrance into the trial that the court itself issued admission cards to control the to control the crowds. So by the middle of May, it finally announced which judge would be presiding over it, which was Judge William E. Hurt Hyatt. On May 19, 1930, the torch killer trial began. With the publicity of the case and the way in which Hilda died, it brought out hundreds of onlookers to the Erie County Courthouse. So only those that had the tickets were admitted. The rest waited on the steps for news as the day went on. And I've been down to Erie County Courthouse, if this is the same courthouse at that time. the Depending on which room, there's not a lot of room in those courtrooms. It's, it's very interesting. The outside of the courthouse is actually quite beautiful. And I can just imagine that the front of that place being packed with people. There's not a whole lot of places for people to sit or or be out there. Um, it's quite out in the open. At 10 a.m., the jury selection began, but by the end of the day, they finally had the 15 people that they had that they had chosen for the jury. And then after that, Edna was brought up uh, before the bar and was reminded of her charges, and then asked of what what she would plead, which was not guilty. But before 4 p.m. that day, the judge had asked both parties if they would be willing to consider an evening session to expedite the trial, which both sides said that they would consider it, especially since there were so many people that were clamoring to get in and there were so many people waiting outside. 
by the start of the, the second day, the ADA Graham made the argument that the murder of Hilda was premedita- premeditated since Edna had purchased the gasoline the day before. Also, Edna had removed the valuable fur out of Hilda's room to protect it from the fire. Remember, she was, she was yelling, where are my furs? Are my furs safe? And that's something that if there's a fire in your home and your most valuable possessions are not in there, I mean, if you have stuff that's in a, a at, at a bank, that's one thing. But if you all of a sudden, like your animals are not in there and things that are of a, a family heirloom type thing suddenly go missing and then your house goes up in fire uh, flames, big red flag. Once this was told, Edna all of a sudden was painted as a vicious woman, that she was uh, poor and she was jealous of Hilda, that the only thing standing in the way of Ralph's full affection and material goods was Hilda. And then he gave a painful description of uh, Hilda's death, which, which I had explained in the first episode, which she was burned about her face and her body from the fire she had not only the burns, but smoke inhalation. The defense had asked, where's the evidence? ADA Herbst introduced a motion to take the jury to the scene of the crime, and defense had did not object so long as the scene had not been tampered with, which with, they knew they didn't because the prosecution had sealed off the scene and they were renting that particular apartment to make sure that it was still preserved. But when they started bringing up witnesses that particular day, one of them, the assistant fire chief, Lawrence Scully, he was asked how the fire was started. All he stated was that it involved gasoline and he was unsure how the gasoline was ignited. Talked about finding the the jug of gasoline and that it was half full he had made, uh, there's a quote in here, murderers are not concerned with conserving the implement or medium through which the crime was committed, which was a huge blow to the prosecution because it meant that, well, if she was going to set everything on fire, why not use the whole jug of gasoline? Was it truly an accident? Later on in that uh, in that day, there was an issue of who really led Hilda out of the apartment. Was it Blossy? Was it Donovan? So it was a lot of back and forth, obviously, through the prosecution and the defense. Then they brought in Dr. Langinger, the attending physician, testified that he found no burns on Edna's hands or any other parts of her body, which raised several questions. Obviously, if her if the pan was hot, why did she not have burns on her hands? If she was near Hilda, you know, why did she not receive any type of burns on her hands, her face, her arms, anything? Out of the blue, all of a sudden, as they're sitting there, this is like a Perry Mason moment or Maddox moment. Edna is reunited with her daughter that she hadn't seen in two years. All of a sudden, a young woman walks into the courtroom, sees her mother sitting at a defense table, walks over, and they both start crying, and they're hugging each other, and it's like, oh my God, mother, is that you? Oh my, yes, dot, 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 and everybody is stunned. Who is this person? It's Edna's daughter. Well, 
holy cow, she has a daughter. Well, we'll look at her. She can show emotion. She has a daughter of her own. She obviously can care for someone other than herself. Was it engineered by the defense? Was, you know, was it a setup by her family? No one knows. But either way, Edna was finally shown in a softer light because up until this point, she just sat there. She showed absolutely no emotion whatsoever. People were really starting to think, oh, maybe she really just doesn't have any love towards this child whatsoever. And this happens. And what does the judge do? Doesn't stop what's going on to tell the young lady, hey, you got to take it outside or you need to leave. He stops the, the hearing at that point and they have a recess for the rest of the day. So these two can talk. Hello. I don't know many judges that would do that right now. They would be upset. They would be demanding who the hell did this. It, and people, and there would be nobody that would be sitting there going, well, yeah, I did. I found her daughter after two years. I figured, well, maybe she needs to see her mama before she goes to jail. No, no. I mean, they needed to portray Edna in a softer light because she was showing absolutely not one bit of emotion whatsoever. Carney himself went on the offense. He argued that Shenango County Sheriff questioned the couple without offering them attorney services or informing them of their rights. In doing so, his, um, I should say, or Edna was his client than just the couple, but he was saying that the couple was not offered any attorney services. So Edna was denied her constitutional rights and that all admissions made during that time were improperly acquired and inadmissible. Yeah, that was pretty much thrown out because even in even in here, she could have stopped and said, nope, I want an attorney at any given time. May 21st, prosecution brought their expert witness, R.E. Lee. Ahead of, he was the head of the chemistry department at Allegheny College and, and an author of the chemistry textbooks. He was asked if the way Edna described how the fire started was possible to, and he was, no. That's all he said. No, no, not possible. He had also testified that the pan would have reached a temperature of 700 to 800 degrees and that Edna's hands would have begun to burn as soon as the temperature reached 400 degrees. So if she was holding that pan as long as she said she was, and the moment it reached 400 degrees, her hands would have been burnt. She would have had some kind of burns on her hands, whether it be in her fingertips, the, the palm of her hands, going up into her wrist, something. And what the defense claim was that it was not entirely impossible, but highly improbable that a pan could be carried and that Edna's apron, which had scorch marks on it to prove it. So what they're saying is, is that, yeah, she carried it. There's scorch marks on it. But what she did was she carried it. Yeah, she did because she threw it on, ba on that little girl. So that, and it didn't, she didn't take as long as she thought, said she did. She just took it over there long enough just to throw it on that little girl. And the thing is, the thing of it was, is that they never tried to explain how the flaming gasoline splashed back over six feet to catch Hilda on fire. See, and that's the thing where Hilda's bed was and where the window was, there's six feet. So if you're throwing flaming gasoline forward and there's splashback, why didn't anything get on Edna? It all just went in this big arc over Edna, 
No droplets fell on Edna. It all hit Hilda. All on Hilda. Nothing miraculously fell on Edna. So on May 22nd, as the trials as the trials continuing with Edna on the stand, she explained for two hours of her story of their times together and how she treated Hilda as one of her own. And then she's finishing up with, you know, the story of the dishpan and then the sudden flames and then the fire. Her eyes watered, they said, but no tears fell. And there was a long pause and then both, both parties rested and then their deliber deliberations began. Remember, I said that they had, they, they had the daughter come in because that's when she cried. That's when she showed emotion up here on the stand. Nada. She got a little teary eyed, but no tears fell. If she really loved that child, A, she would have tried to have saved her while she was in there. B, she would have made more, she would have been around there more often than just taking off and leaving. C, she would have showed way more emotion in the courtroom because of she supposedly cared for this child. So after the deliberations began, the jury obviously were deliberating the fate of Edna. First ballot, nine of the jury members voted for a conviction of second degree murder, two voted for the death sentence, and one held out for an acquittal. As this is all going on, Edna obviously is nervous and she's pacing the hallway in the company of Deputy Sheriff Irma McDonald. Ralph remained in the courtroom falling in and out of sleep. Obviously, he was probably, you know, ah, well, sucks to be her. I, to me, that's what it seemed like. If he's in there falling asleep, eh, fuck it. Excuse my language. But if he loved her the way he said he did, and he believed that she was innocent, like he said, he would have been up and as nervous as she was. But he's falling asleep. The deliberations took several days. And by the end of uh, that Friday, they still weren't done. And it took three ballots. On that third ballot, all 12 voted for the prosecution. Edna was found guilty of second degree murder at 3.30 a.m. The judge was summoned. 40 minutes later, the verdict was read guilty. Now, at this time, PA State Western Penitentiary did not accept women, and the Allegheny County Workhouse was for those inmates um, serving a sentence longer than a year. Erie County authorities, they had to look for somewhere for Edna to be placed. Remember, this was back in May. They didn't find anywhere for Edna to be placed until September of that year. They had her sentencing, and she was sentenced to 10 to 20 years. Erie County finally received an approval for Edna to be placed at the Muncie Institute for, Win uh, for Women in Muncie, Pennsylvania. And there, Edna was assigned to the lace-making department to make use of her dressmaking skills, which, you know, hey, if that's the way it's going to be, that's the way it's got to be. In April of 1932, Edna's case was revived by the Erie Daily Times when they published an article about Erie's most notorious females, which... She's pretty notorious, I have to admit, because when somebody brought this up about, you know, people who are infamous around Erie, this this was brought up a few years ago. Edna had only served 21 months of her minimum 120-month sentence, but there was speculation that her sentence might be reduced to seven to, or eight years. And that person was correct. 
On December 24th, 1938, Edna Mumbulo, the eerie murderess, the torch killer, was freed from prison. In all, she served eight years and three months in the Muncie facility. Governor George H. Hurley commuted her minimum sentence to exactly eight years, three months to allow her immediate release. Erie County District Attorney's Office did not object, so Edna was set free. She actually had some supporters that had argued that over those years, she demonstrated model behavior. Upon release, she and Ralph, four, and you're going to love this because as I'm reading this, I'm like, well, what the hell happened to Ralph? We're reading about Edna here. Where the hell was Ralph through all this? He had to have something. No, they dropped charges against Ralph. What the hell? How did he get charges dropped and she got sent to prison? That does not seem right. Mm. Anyways, Ralph and Edna were still together. They moved to the to Rochester, New York area to start over. And over the eh, next 20-some-odd years, they bounced around between New York State, Florida, and North Carolina. They visited family members, but they never stayed too long. Come on, wondering why. Do you want someone in your house that was convicted of killing a child? I mean, especially if you have children of your own in the house? Hell no. You know what? You want to come and visit? Stay in a goddamn hotel. I don't want that woman around my kids. No. But anyways, Ralph died in 1965. And then by the late 1980s, Edna was back in Erie, uh, where she found housing in in the Erie County Geriatric Center. Now, Edna died in 1990 at the age of 99. And she's buried at St. Joseph Cemetery in Perry, New York. And that's, that's pretty much the end of her story. Where she was living at, nobody would have guessed that she was this notorious female child killer. She was a little old lady that lived in a geriatric center. That was the end of it. But you never know who someone really is. That's why people say you got to go and listen to people's stories and stuff like that. And it's very much true. You need to listen to people's stories, especially those that are living in senior centers. I mean, not, Listen, go and listening to the vets and stuff like that and listen to their stories. They're amazing. I mean, the, the knowledge that these people have. But for this woman here, I'm sorry. If she was convicted of killing a child, she should have stayed in prison and served her and served her term. But for being allowed out only after eight years, Hilda, Hilda didn't deserve to die that way. You know, I mean, what did, there's no bringing Hilda back. And yet those two got to live their life and hop around from state to state, family member to family member afterwards. And yet my question is, do they even remember, did they even take time to think about Hilda? You know, did, when this was all going on, the trial and stuff like that, was it karma that they had to pay off attorney fees and stuff like that with the money that was from Hilda's inheritance from her mother. Did they even get any of that money afterwards? I mean, I'm sure her father did if all the charges were dropped. So that meant that, you know, in a sense that Edna did. So she did not really serve any time 
as from what I from what I think she should have served. I mean, for someone to die in a fire like that, especially a child, I mean, that's that's cold, man. I mean, that is cold. If you didn't want to be with him because he was he paid more attention to his child, he spent money on his child, he loved his child, then go somewhere else. Go be with someone who's single. But this here, like I said, it was a very, very interesting case. And the fact that they ended up starting the case in New York and they were going back and forth between New York and PA and then finally bringing it back to Erie and all the um, paper headlines and things like that and the courthouse giving out card admissions just so they could keep control of what was going on in the courtroom. That's pretty interesting in itself. You don't hear about that too much anymore unless you get with the OJ trial and those really, really big ones. So this was a big deal in Erie's history. I really hope that you enjoyed the rest of this story. I am so fascinated by this kind of stuff that it it was it was very interesting to go through the information that was available to me. Just a reminder, please don't forget to like the episodes, leave some feedback, go to podbean.com. We're on Spotify, Facebook, and Twitter. Facebook, it's All Things Erie from Erie PA. If you'd like to leave a message, please do so. We are on iTunes. I really hope that you're having a wonderful weekend. And this is Kathy signing off. <laughs>